When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Darius Dale. Uh, Let's just jump right in here. Obviously, a lot happening, lots to talk about. The first Omicron case detected in the United States, probably no surprise to anyone. Uh, Nonetheless, U.S. equity markets reverse their earlier gains and sell off. Looks like like the S&P is off uh, about one spot, 2% on the day. NASDAQ looks like the the big loser off almost 1.83%. NASDAQ, uh, excuse me right now, S&P uh, 500 trading at 4,512 as we head into the close right now. Uh, U.S. equity markets have really been, uh, well, let's just call them very active uh, since <laughs> Friday. Uh, news coming from Jay Powell yesterday, Chair, Fed Chair Jay Powell uh, on the Hill uh, talking about the potential uh, to withdraw the accommodation uh, via uh, the taper more quickly than originally planned and also potentially retiring the word uh transitory. Obviously, some very big news. Couldn't have a better person here to talk about this with us, to bring us into his macro worldview. Darius Dale, welcome back to the show. Ash, what's up, man? How's it going? Oh, man, you tell me. What's your view of everything that's happening here? We talked about it a little bit at the top of the show, incredibly active time. Uh, What's the framework saying? What are your gauges saying right now, Darius? Well, I like to start with some poking some humor, because obviously, we got a little volatility in markets today to discuss and unpack. But I find it uh, funny that the, the word, the phrase transitory ultimately proved to be transitory <laughs> and not inflation, <laughs> which is pretty yeah. funny. Um, that's neither here nor there. I mean, poor Powell, he's in a, he's in a really tough spot uh, with yeah. respect to uh, their dual mandate. But that's neither here nor there. So obviously, you know, Omicron is, is causing a lot of financial market volatility. Um, I would argue the Fed's uh, accelerating tape, confirming what we've always thought would be an accelerated uh, tapering time frame, at least not always, sorry, going back to a few weeks ago. Um, thought that'd be an accelerated tapering time frame, and so that the, you know the confluence of you know a potential slowdown in growth, you know, from a post Delta bounce that we called out going back to August, in the heading into a, a Fed tightening event, you know, as soon as potentially June of next year, I think markets are certainly concerned about that. But there's some reasons to be positive. There's some reasons to be cautious, and we can unpack those reasons. Yeah. By the way, you just said something there, Darius, in passing, that I think really is the core of everything we're talking about right now, the bind that Jay Powell is in. You mentioned the dual mandate, uh, this notion of trying to maximize uh, for two different variables, optimize, I should say, for two different variables, uh, stable employment uh, and, uh, and, 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 and stable prices, I should say, uh, maximal uh, employment and stable prices. This is really a difficult bind in this uh, situation because they both seem to be under threat simultaneously. Give us the framework for what that means and how you're looking at it. Yeah, no. So look, the, the, the Fed clearly back going back to August of 2020 pivoted to a maximum and inclusive employment and, and, and labor shortfall uh, with respect to their Fed, their, their growth mandate. And obviously they had to adjust their inflation mandate to accommodate that to allow the economy to effectively overheat on purpose to sort of get the labor market back to 
uh, what Powell would characterize as some pretty buoyant uh, conditions, you know, prior to the pandemic. Um, so there's some things, you know, so with respect to those dynamics, you know, the employment to population ratio is still 230 basis points off of its, you know, pre-COVID high. Uh, the, the, the prime working age labor force participation ratio is down 130 basis points off of its pre-COVID high. And then ultimately, uh, the female labor force participation rate, which is probably the most important uh, statistic that's impacted by COVID, um, still down 180 basis points from its pre-COVID high. So, you know, I think that there's a, the, the, the doves on the, 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 the FOMC are very much looking at that, those data sets and saying, right. hey, look, we have to be patient because if we start to remove accommodation from the economy at this particular juncture, we're effectively stranding behind millions of Americans and trapping them out of the labor force and trapping them out of the employment markets. And that's obviously not a good thing. But the reality is the hawks on the Fed board, and really it's not even the hawks, it's really the data, the reacceleration in inflation, particularly in the month of November, was a big deal. I mean, on a SAR basis, headline CPI accelerated back to 12%. On a SAR basis, that's the highest number we've seen since June 08. But more importantly, core PCE accelerated. This is October data that we got a few weeks ago or, or last week. Core PCE accelerated to, uh, to 5% on a SAR basis. That's the highest number we've seen uh, in a few months. So we had been trending down with respect to the sequential momentum and in inflation. But that uptick in October, um, in the October data set, both on the headline, core, core PCE, all those types of metrics that the Fed are looking at, they do have to suit. It's likely that they have to do something different uh, come twelve fifteen or, or, or December fifteen. Yeah, well, that's it in a nutshell, right there. That's the bind. That's the dilemma. Uh, inflation accelerating at five percent on PCE, cited by Jay Powell on the Hill yesterday, uh, well above the two percent longer run mandate. Meanwhile, simultaneously, the point that you make about the damage, the destruction to the labor market, something that's really so core uh, to everything we're talking about. We're talking about the labor force participation rate. Uh, this is a series called CIVPART, C-I-V-P-A-R-T, on the mm -hmm. St. Louis Fed Fred website. And boy, is it an ugly chart. Uh, this reminds me of what Ed Harrison, our old friend, used to talk about as the inverse radical sign. It basically, you see it kind of chugging along like this, declining a little bit, then a wickedly steep drop, right? This, yeah. is, this, this is what happens when you close an economy uh, because of the virus. <laughs> then you see the equally rapid recovery. But guess what? It doesn't get back up to par. It doesn't get up to where it should be. And then it just goes sideways again at the newer, lower level. This is something that really is uh, devastating to people who are in that position, people who have exited the labor force. You know, Maybe someone uh, in their early 60s who planned to work for another six or seven years, uh, and they decide they have no choice but to retire. Uh, mm -hmm. All of these very difficult trade-offs. Uh, job uh, job level, you see the same thing as you do with the, uh, with the uh, civilian labor force participation rate. Talk to you a little bit about what that means and how you measure it. Yeah, absolutely. This is something I unpacked in great detail uh, in the long-form discussion I did with Stephen Van Meter, I want to say, in, in October. And the reality is, is it's there's a lot of dynamics that are causing friction in the labor market, and this happens in every cycle. There's always a set of hysteresics that, that develop in the labor market, right. and as a function of that, the Fed typically has to be you know, pretty slow removing the punch bowl in the early start of the, in the early phase of an economic expansion. So clearly you have the retirement uh, dilemma with respect to COVID. Obviously, female labor force participation um, is a big deal. You have household net worth being um, you know, extremely elevated. Uh, one metric we track is household net worth as a percent of disposable personal income. And that's basically about you know, 780, you know, basically eight, eight or nine times higher than uh, a, a ratio of disposable personal income. That's an all-time high. 
So you might have two uh, uh, two job households transitioning to one one and a half job household as well. And right. then ultimately, there's the geographic mismatch. People are moving moving to places where they may or may not be able to you know work in the same industry. And then also you you know there also just just, just a skills mismatch as well as we continue to see. And this is something that's persisted throughout the previous cycle. And so you layer on all those things with the labor market that is you know kind of in that part of the phase where it's going to continue to improve slowly. Um, and albeit, I will say the ADP data this morning we're, we're pretty robust. But again, it's part of the, the part of the sine curve where we were going to bounce. You know, it's a November data point. Uh, we accelerated 20 basis points to 4.5 percent year over year. That's the highest number I think we've seen uh, in about uh, four or five months. So that's a good data point. We're continuing to pull those people back into the kiddie pool that is the U.S. labor market. But the speed with which we do that is likely to slow down by as a fundamental reason for a number of factors. One. We have a declining fiscal impulse and one that could actually accelerate to the downside to the extent the Biden agenda gets derailed, as I continuously think, or as I uh, increasingly believe it may, uh, with respect to Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema not playing ball as a function of all this uh, high inflation. And then two, you, 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 know, you have steepening base effects for growth. You obviously have less policy accommodation on, from the Monetary Policy Authority. And so you kind of look out into the world in 2022, and I think the big deal, the big issue for markets, and it may not be a big issue for markets today, but I do believe at some point in the next three to six months, it will be a very big deal for markets, is the fact that gro- growth expectations, both domestically and globally, remain extremely elevated. Now, they're talking about a U.S. economy growing 4% on a real GDP basis next year. And in the context of everything I just said, I struggle to get to those numbers. I mean, that's the reality. That I mean, I think that's something the bond market has clearly looked out and into. Um, if you look at the long end of the curve, curve flattening, um, break to new lows in the 30-year I think that's something that investors are certainly weighing and increasingly uh, being forced to consider. Yeah, boy, yeah. that's so well framed, Darius. I think that's uh, really the crux of the issue when we talk about labor markets, and you've expanded upon it in a really, I think, uh, illuminating way, so that we try and get our heads around what's happening here. You said something at the very beginning uh, of this uh, of that answer, uh, an SAT word, hysteresis. This is such <laughs> an interesting point. It's something that comes up in physics, in chemistry, but it's actually kind of a simple uh, idea. It's basically you have inputs and you have outputs, and at a certain point, when things in the system get out of whack, the outputs stop responding to the inputs. So even as the causes change, the effects don't then follow. Tell us a little bit about the role that hysteresis plays uh, in U.S. labor markets when we have a crisis like the one we saw during COVID. Yeah, so this is exactly the point where that everyone makes when they're sort of buying early cycle cyclicals at the bottom of a recession in the stock market and the credit markets is because of that labor market hysteresis. The growth impulse that, t- that tends to catalyze higher labor is not the, it, it's not a one-to-one transmission mechanism during recession, immediately after recession in the early part of the recovery. Right. So you do get this you know, kind of explosion in, in profitability uh, in the corporate sector as a function of that hysteresis. Uh, but then as, it, you know, as you march throughout time, you know, the labor market really starts to heal, and it heals at a much slower pace, typically, uh, than, the, the, than the improvement in the economy as you progress into the mid-cycle. And then later cycle, you kind of hand the baton off from the growth dynamics to the labor market dynamics. And that's typically uh, when the labor market peaks, it's obviously how the MBER and the BEA catalyzers or, or, or you know, kind of uh, identify recessions. So that, that's neither here nor there. But that's that. This is the process we're in now. Yeah. You know, I think we're still early in the expansion phase of the discussion. It's just that the shape of the expansion as a function of Omicron and potentially as a function of uh, a Fed acknowledging and acquiescing a policy rate tightening expectations by the middle of next year. You know, the shape of that expansion might be a little bit different than investors thought. You know, maybe going three or four weeks ago. Yeah, Darius, you just explained history this much better than my Econ 101 teacher did, I can assure you. Uh, but listen, you talk about these phases. I, I, 
Google.com is, and is a lot better than Yale and you know, wherever you studied economics, trust me. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Well, you had a whole lot more uh, PhDs and uh, and uh, and Nobel Prize winners in economics at Yale than I did where I was. But listen, let me ask you this. As you talk about these phases, these phase transitions, tell us where we are right now in your grid view of the world and unpack for people who may not be familiar with it, uh, how that foresees analyzes and explains what's happening in an economy. Yeah, great question. So uh, for those of you who are new, uh, uh, we, we've analyzed the world in regime segmentation fashion, um, thinking about Goldilocks, where growth's accelerating and inflation's decelerating relative to reflation, what we call, that's when growth and inflation are accelerating simultaneously. Um, there's growth and inflate, growth decelerating, inflation accelerating. That's what we call inflation. Many of you will call that stagflation. And then lastly, what we call deflation, that's where growth and inflation are decelerating simultaneously. And so you think about the progression over the last few weeks and months, you know, we bounced into this reflation regime where the markets are pricing in reflation. And partially as a function of that, we do believe, or, or, sorry, the markets are pricing in reflation and our belief as a function of the post-Delta bounce in economic activity that we continue to observe. Obviously, we got some very strong ADP data this morning, very strong ISM data this morning that we can unpack that as well. And so yeah, we yeah. did have that post-Delta bounce and we did have that mini reflation trade that we called for going back to uh, September. The reality is, is the markets started to, 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 to price that out going back to the early part of November and has officially priced that out as recently as, as last week, um, in the early part of last week, in transitioning to what we call, again, inflation. That's stagflation. That's where the market is pricing in accelerating growth and decelerating uh, inflation in terms of the pivots that investors need to make. You know, you just, you know the, our, our process really anchors on understanding you know, how asset markets, what creates dispersion in asset markets across those regimes through the lens of volatility, covariance, expected returns, percent positive ratios. And there's some pretty key takeaways in terms of, you know, when you pivot from reflation to inflation, from an equity style factor uh, perspective, you go from being overweight high beta cyclicals and small caps to being underweight those things. From an equity sector perspective, when you pivot from reflation to inflation, you go from being overweight industrials financials, energy, to being underweight those things. And right, then lastly, right. within the fixed income markets, you go from being overweight, things like BDCs, convertibles, preferreds, high-yield credit, to being underweight those things. And so um, that's part of the process, part of the volatility we're seeing in the last couple of weeks, you know, since going back to last Friday, in our opinion, is the market reacting to that 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 phase transition in, in macro market dynamics that our process, you know, spotted a few weeks ago and, and started the position for a few weeks ago. So a lot of investors came into this, you know, and came into the Omicron news, came into the tapering news, long of a reflation portfolio, and they didn't get the memo that they should have transitioned to something that looks more like inflation. Yeah, that's such a crisp explanation and connection uh, between, on the one hand, the state of the macro economy, as your gauges and dials tell you as you monitor it, on the one hand, uh, and on the other, the sectoral analysis of what's happening in U.S. equities. We're going to get to that in just one second, but you did mention one other thing that I wanted you to unpack, uh, which is the ISM Manufacturing Index. Uh, Obviously, manufacturing continuing to accelerate. Give us your sense on what's happening there and how it plays into your grid view. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the right now, the the from a bottom up perspective. So what I just told everything I just said was talking about the market regime. What's the market pricing in through the lens of what we call our global macro risk matrix, which looks at uh, the forty two most liquid, you know, kind of most widely followed market indicators in the world through the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal. From a bottom up perspective, in terms of what the economy is actually doing, inflation is still the, the most probable outcome, the most the highest realized outcome. Uh, for most of the U.S. and global economies with respect to the next three months, that transitions to deflation, growth slowing, inflation slowing. When you look, you know, kind of in the three to six month out view right now, the one to three month four view is inflation. The three to six month out view is, is, is deflation. And so, you know, when I look at the ISM manufacturing PMI data, you know, when I look at any data, I'm, I'm looking to see if it's confirming our models forecast or if it's disconfirming our models forecast, and the reality is they're all being fed into the nowcast, so it doesn't really matter. But you know, from a from a color commentating perspective, the number one data point, I said this in my macro minute this morning, the number one data point we need to be looking for in the ISM uh, manufacturing print for this month for November um, is the percentage of respondents reporting slower supply delivery times. Um, we made the thesis that hey, you know, uh, going it, we might be moving past peak supply chain disruptions. In the U.S. economy, in the global economy, particularly as we move kind of past this pull full pulled forward um, holiday season, and that we're not, you know, we're starting to get incremental evidence of that the supply that number, that percentage of respondents reporting slower supplier delivery times that takes down to forty eight point two. That's the lowest number we've seen in a few months. So that's a good thing. Um, in so much that the ISM prices indices index uh, ticked down to eighty two point four. That's the lowest number we've seen in a couple of months. So. Um, as it relates to you know getting going down that path and marching towards you know inflation slowing on a trading basis, growth slowing on a trading basis, which again is our process we call that deflation, that is something that's increasingly likely as it go according to today's today's data. Yeah, well, that is really the perfect segue you just set me up with here to square the circle and continue the narrative uh, with what's happening from the macro economy into what's happening in these equity markets. Talk a little bit about the sector analysis, the sector breakdown, and how that maps on to the grids you've just described. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess the key takeaway, you know, when you're going from Goldilocks or reflation, which are pro-growth environments, that's where growth is accelerating both, to an inflation or deflation environment, that's where growth is decelerating in both of those regimes. You know, there's some pretty obvious pivots you make. I mentioned the reflation pivots. But when you go from an inflation to a deflation, that lateral pivot, you don't need to make as many uh, changes in your portfolio. You do need to take down your overall risk with respect to how much beta you how much equity and credit beta you have. But the reality is the sectors, the style factors that you tend to be wanting to, you want to be overweight and underweight uh, are generally the same in so much that kind of the fixed income sectors that you want to be allocated to and out of uh, tend to be very much the same as well. So that's not a difficult pivot for investors to risk manage. The issue is that they came into this, this game into last Friday's SmackDown and this week's SmackDowns being long of reflation. And that's the issue right. with the asset markets right now. And so you know, there's an opportunity for you know for asset markets to fully you know for investors to to sort of you know finish out that pivot because again let's be let's take a step back from everything here. The Fed is still going to buy ninety billion or eighty five billion dollars of bonds this month. You know what I mean? Like like let's keep that in our back of our head. You know they're talking about accelerating the taper to get them to a potential June rate hike uh, scenario. Yeah, yeah. It's December first. You know what I mean? Like, let's not let's not be too carried away with respect to tapering and monetary policy tightening. There's certainly legs to this bull market from a net liquidity perspective. If you isolate that factor, it's very unlikely that net liquidity provision inflects lower, which it should take the S&P lower, should take risk assets lower. It's very unlikely that it inflects lower until at least the latter part of Q1, the early part of Q2. And so that tells you, it's a, it, from, a, from that perspective alone, from the policy, from the liquidity that got us here, from the punch bowl that we're all 
punch happy drunk on, that is not changing anytime soon with respect to the asset market's ability to continue higher. What is potentially changing, obviously, is Omicron, its impact on the economy, um, particularly through the lens of vaccines that may or may not be effective. That is something that investors are a little bit worried for. And also the fiscal policy dynamics, we're kind of inching closer to, to D-Day, although there's some estimates that, uh, that Yellen could potentially extend uh, the debt selling into January. So that may be less of a catalyst in the near term. So let's continue that narrative uh, to other risk asset markets. We talked about U.S. equities. You framed it up uh, tightly there in terms of this correspondence, the grids. Uh, give us an explanation of how you're thinking right now about fixed income, about bond prices, uh, and also about commodities and currencies. Yeah, absolutely. So bonds are overbought here, um, in our opinion, and really, sorry, not our opinion, our probable range model's opinion. Um, so that's that, That's good. You know, We were you know, adequately positioned for bonds in the 42 macro uh, portfolio construction since going back to uh, a few weeks ago. And so that, that's been a good trade. But the reality is, on a, on a medium-term basis, you know, there's some pretty obvious asset allocation decisions that you need to make as an investor, whether you're a, you know, running the world's largest hedge fund or whether you're you know, running the world's smallest you know, uh, personal account or retirement account. When you're at the peak of the growth and inflation sign curves, you don't sell bonds and talk about you know, inflation east of this or bond yields are going to 5% or you know, the death of 60-40. Like that's the, you, you, you have those conversations as a prudent investor before bond yields go up, before inflation gets to the peak of the sign curve, before growth gets to the peak of its sign curve. When you're at the peaks of the sign curve, you do well to read Danny Kahneman's new book, Noise, stick your fingers in your ear and just make the calm, you know, you know most likely high, highest probability asset allocation decisions that you need to make, which is I need to take up my exposure to bonds and 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 and, and defensive assets, and take down my exposure to higher beta uh, risk assets um, at the margins, and more importantly, within the risk asset uh, bets that I'm making in the context of the portfolio, I need to be in more liquid exposures, more defensive exposures, and that's something we've been talking about since going back to you know a few weeks ago. You know, so to us, that pivot was starting to become very obvious um, within the confines of our process and all the data driven. Uh, signals that we make, but it's I think it's becoming very obvious, unfortunately, in the wrong way to a lot of other investors. Yeah, extremely well said. Uh, by the way, continuing that narrative, talking about markets, one of the things that I enjoy most about being at Real Vision is the way that we cover cryptocurrency as a macro asset class in a way that I don't think others have really quite caught on to yet. I wanted to take a quick look at a clip. Uh, this is actually a conversation that I had with Chris Perkins, uh, president of CoinFund, out today. This is free to everyone. All you have to do is go to realvision.com to sign up. It's on our Real Vision crypto tier, which again is free to everyone. Let's take a look at that clip. It's obvious to me that current law and regulation just doesn't contemplate the technology that we're seeing. It's operating in a world that extends beyond. Of course it does, because the vast preponderance of our laws and regulations come from 1933. The Howey test comes from 1946. It just doesn't contemplate. And so when you, when, when I'm very sympathetic to the position that regulators are in right now, because their job is to enforce laws and enforce law and statute. Well, there you have it. First of all, if you haven't seen this conversation yet, it's an incredible personal journey. Uh, Chris Perkins' story about how he got into uh, the crypto space, uh, his life before a fascinating conversation that you can only hear on Real Vision right now. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit more broadly about the points that he was making. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about this conversation with Chris is that he's framing this context, this conversation much broader than many people are, talking about this transition uh, that we're in, uh, laws that were formed uh, in the 1930s uh, to address challenges with the Great Depression being inadequate uh, to kind of 
describe, foresee, understand the crypto digital asset universe and how we're going to transition to an environment uh, where these markets, the digital asset markets, become much more tightly integrated into what's happening uh, in risk asset markets more generally, but also into what's happening from a global macro perspective. I know this is something that you're curious about, that you think about a great deal, Darius. Talk about the, uh, the, the collision of global macro and cryptocurrency slash digital assets. Yeah, no, we've we've fully integrated cryptocurrency into our into our macro risk management framework. I mean, I don't it doesn't live you know out there as this esoteric asset class with respect to how we think about investing. It's it's very much part of the the menu of investment exposures or, or the menu of investment products that you could have to represent various views and themes in your portfolio. Um, the reality is, in in crypto specifically, you tend to get paid very much when you're in Goldilocks and inflation to a lesser degree when you're in inflation and the, the general death knell for crypto as it is for most risk assets is when you're in deflation with growth and inflation are decelerating simultaneously. So, uh, you know, so very much, yeah, we, we back tested through the same lens and the same robust uh, metrics and ultimately understand, you know, how to position for that, you know, within the context of our risk management system. So yeah, definitely, you know, been a crypto bull. I'll say this, you know, you can fact check me on this because I believe I said this in October of 2020. I said, bullish on crypto, you know, this is going to be, there's going to be a huge institutional adoption story over the next year as, you know, inflation kind of gets out of hand. Um, but the reality is, is the more crypto becomes institutionally adopted by people like me, by people like the big hedge funds that we serve at 42 Macro, like the big mutual funds and pension funds that we serve, it's going to start to trade like everything else. So that, that, that covariance, that benefit of, 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 of diversification that you would typically get from an asset class that has historically been very uncorrelated. Um, with other asset classes is only going to get increasingly correlated. So what that means for all you crypto people out there, you're going to need to figure out how the rest of us invest because you're going to start to get <laughs> blindsided increasingly by market moving events that you have no idea why they happened. And so much that when we first started investing in crypto, certainly myself, there'd be these big wild price movements. And I'm like, I have no idea what just happened. Why is this thing up five or 10% over the weekend? I think that with people who are native to that crypto community are going to increasingly find themselves at the mercy of these other larger institutional players that are coming in trying to have strategic stakes in this asset class. So I think it just I think it's a great opportunity for everyone to sort of cross the the aisle, if you will, and start to do more research on you know the just the fundamental drivers of crypto, the microeconomic drivers of crypto, as well as the macroeconomic drivers of markets as a whole. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Boy, I'm smiling right now, Darius, because I think we just got a clip uh, for social media there. I mean, that's such a profound and powerful statement. Uh, the idea that folks who are in the crypto space are going to have to get a sense of some of the macro issues that you're talking about. You set it up, you framed it so tightly there, so uh, crisply. This idea uh, that cryptocurrency benefits during particular regimes, specifically during Goldilocks and reflation to a lesser extent during inflationary times and has a challenge during deflation. Uh, that's an incredibly crisp formula. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's <laughs> don't thank me. Thank the Christmas of math, man. It's, it's a, that's the beauty of the whole process. It's all data driven. It's all quantitative. And uh, it allows us to make, you know, high probability bets at every interval. 
no, we're not going to get everything right. I think that'd be a misnomer to suggest we do. We're on a hot streak right now. But the reality is we're always going to know why we're doing what we're doing. And we're always going to know why we're taking that we are taking the highest probability bets at every interval um, that that will set you up for success uh, over the long term, much better than you know doing something not not that. <laughs> well, we can thank you, too, because it's a really cool narrative and it gives us a way to talk about it in a way that maybe mathematics uh, is great at making those predictive uh, analytics. But to actually have a conversation here, understand the narrative uh, about why crypto trades the way it does on a global uh, scale, basically not talking about this or that protocol experiencing this or that technical problem or advance, but to understand the macro context, crypto as a macro asset class, boy, this is just in its infancy. And I just don't feel like there are a whole lot of other people having this conversation that you and I are having right now anywhere else. Yeah, no, look, you're, you're, you're spot on. I have these conversations with institutional investors. Um, I just don't, you know, I don't think there's a lot of, there's not enough institutional investors yet to have these conversations out, you know, out, out loud. Right. I think they're still very much in the process of getting things approved by compliance, being forced by their clients, particularly in the high net worth uh, space, to, to kind of you know adopt crypto and create these products and instruments. But the reality is, in terms of actually weaving into a, a real strategic or task class allocation framework, you know, most of the conversations I have are really around, okay, how do we actually do that? Seems like you've actually built a process around helping you do that, helping other people do that. Let's unpack that. How does it fit into you know, portfolio construction, things of that nature. So those conversations are being had. It's just, you know, I do believe that that is the growth of the industry. It's it's like a growth yeah. in the space of this growth of that whole kind of, you know, ecosystem, if you will. Um, that's something that's going to be ongoing over the next few years. Yeah, I think those conversations are being had uh, via Zoom calls between you and hedge funds uh, and yeah. maybe in some uh, fancy boardrooms uh, here in Midtown. Uh, but the idea that we can bring this conversation, I think, to a broader group of people, I think it's incredibly exciting and it's fun to be involved in that. Talking of which, broadening the conversation, lots of questions for you, Darius, uh, coming into us. Uh, let's just jump right in, uh, in no particular order here. This one comes from Ralph Humphrey from The Exchange. Uh, boy, this is a question that you may not agree with the presupposition of, but it's certainly a view that's out there. So I'm curious to hear how you respond. Ralph wants to know, perhaps a tad cynically, which central banks are the worst three in the world? Oh, clearly Turkey. Turkey is number one. <laughs> they're extremely bad at central banking. They're, I would even they're not a central bank. They're, they're a government that has a you know CBT uh, monitor. So you can you can I guess you can put them in there. Uh, number two, I would argue. Um, the the Argentine central bank, you know, they consistently get it wrong in terms of the understanding the 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 market implied pricing of the currency relative to what the spot rate the, the spot rate is. Um, and let me see, I would maybe say Brazil too. Um, they, they're typically very you know kind of late to the inflation impulses in the economy. Um, they 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 tend to react to them, but they're always you know they generally are pretty late. Um, and 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 more importantly, they they need to do a whole. This is a very esoteric discussion, but they need to do a whole rework of their entire financial sector because you know the sell-off rate is very disconnected from you know the rates that are realized in the economy, in the mortgage space, in the consumer space, and things of that nature. So they got a whole lot of work to do to get up to speed as it relates to modern central banking. But if I had to pick three, and and if you, I guarantee you right now, without even having to open my Bloomberg, those are probably the three currencies in the world with the highest volatility on the trailing three, five, ten-year basis. Yeah, well, we know on a three, five, ten day basis, Turkey is certainly uh, in the pole position on that uh, in terms of volatility. Listen, let me ask you this: uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, banks, central banks in the industrialized world, uh, and how you handicap them. Let's talk here about the Fed, BOE, BOJ, uh, and ECB, uh, some of the main central banks, and how you think about the job that they're doing. I think they're all doing a pretty decent job. I mean, I think the BO, uh, the Bank of England. 
is is what I would sort of take out of that mix. You know, the ECB's done a really decent job. The Bank of Japan's done a really decent job. And by and large, up until the last couple of months, the Fed has done an excellent job. I mean, to say that we, to see where we are as an economy, going back to the fear we had when we were taping our gloves and last March and putting, you know, boxes over our heads to go to the grocery store, like, and to think about where we are, you know, kind of 18 months later, it's pretty remarkable. And so you do have to, you know, tip your cap to Jay Powell and the committee there for, you know, helping facilitate that um, through obviously easy money and, and getting, keeping the credit markets open. So they've done a good job. Bank of Japan's done a good job. ECB's done a good job. UK, the Bank of England, it's a bit different story because, you know, their current account deficit nation that imports a lot of their, you know, consumable goods, their, you know, consumable services. And the reality is, it's, it's they have a different setup. You know, they're always going to experience a little bit more inflation pressure in these types of environments uh, than other, you know, than their core European counterparts. And so, kind of the mismanagement or the the lack of understanding of that heading into, you know, this inflation cycle, in our opinion, is is, is one reason to give them a, a kind of a timeout or a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Hey, Darius, I know you and I could talk for about six hours here uh, about all of these topics. We're starting to run out of time, but I wanted to go to one more question. Uh, this one comes to us from Hugh M. This comes to us from The Exchange. This is Real Vision's internal social media network. Uh, Hugh M. is obviously uh, someone who is very read into your grid view of the world. Uh, and he says, uh, Darius, I believe you continue to lean into inflation in your market regime. Can you please juxtapose this with the recent dramatic decline in WPTI and the pending impact this will have on CPI, consumer price? index going forward. Thanks. Yeah, most people don't realize this, but you know, when you back test these things, you know, so there's so much I, I said this in my interview with Tony, there's a bubble in narrative-based investing. You know, there's so much money sloshing around, heading into the equity market, heading into the commodity market, heading into the crypto space as a function of the checks we all got, as a function of markets going up, compounding and creating profits. You know, so there's it's been never been easier to make money in financial markets based on your narratives. Well, I think that I think the game changed. It got a lot harder back in June, you know, in and around the June FOMC pivot when the, that was the first indication of, of tightening non-MMT Fed. And it, since then, it's been a lot more difficult, a lot more challenging for investors to understand style factor dispersion, to understand commodity market dispersion, to understand you know fixed income sector dispersion, and really you know actually take advantage of those things in a, in, a, in a material profitable way. And so you know, in terms of you know going back to this discussion about WTI, most investors don't understand that when you're in stagflation. Now, crude oil has a the negative expected value if you're talking about deep stagflation where growth is slowing uh, meaningfully. Uh, when you're talking about growth accelerating or slowing you know, modestly, then crude oil has a positive expected value. So very much crude oil could be pricing in a more, a more de- uh, sharper decline in, de- in economic activity as a function of Omicron you know, kind of really spreading and, and, and catching on like wildfire here in the States and here in the global economy. So that's something to be aware of. You know, we back-tested everything that ticks through all these different angles speed of growth, speed of inflation, what's the Fed doing, what's the fiscal policy doing? All that stuff is, is, is sort of programmed into our portfolio construction process. And so, you know, that that's in our opinion, that's what the crude oil markets are signaling. That's what equity markets are signaling, is you could either have A, have a, a deeper slowdown in a stagflationary macroeconomic environment, which we call inflation, or that stagflationary macroeconomic environment could actually be pivoting towards something that resembles more like deflation as a function of COVID dynamics getting way out of control over the next kind of six to eight weeks. So that's to be that's to be determined, that's to be learned. But more importantly, the most important part of this process is not to guess. You have a compendium of market-based indicators that'll tell us to dial up or dial down the risk. And so I look forward to updating those models tomorrow morning. Like the Fed, Darius, you remain data dependent. Boy, that's such a great place to leave it. Such a great can I can I interject? <laughs> yes, we're, please. We're, 
we're data dependent in a forward looking manner. <laughs> data dependent in a backward looking manner. We're trying to make money in financial markets. I think they're just trying to keep them propped up. <laughs> Perfect place to leave it. Darius, always a pleasure to have you on the show, but especially great insights here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ash. Appreciate you guys. Thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Maggie will be here tomorrow with Stephen Van Meter. And as always, the, continue, the conversation continues on the exchange. Stay tuned uh, for a clip of The Takeover. Thanks for joining us, everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.